verses 8 through 15 for context, but we will be focusing on verses 14 and 15, Lord willing, this morning. Romans 1, starting with verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel also to those of you who are in Rome. I've entitled this sermon, Reality of the Narrow Road. The Reality of the Narrow Road. Christ Jesus made it abundantly clear that there are only two groups of people in this world. Now, critical race theory, which is very popular these days, would have you believe that there are two groups as well, but these groups are split up into the haves and the have-nots, the oppressed and the oppressor, the privileged and the unprivileged. But Jesus adamantly disagrees with this worldview. There are only two groups, those who are on the broad road that leads to destruction and those who are on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. There are the sheep and there are the goats. There are the lost, and there are the saved. There are the children of the devil, and there are the children of the living God, as 1 John 3 tells us. Which group are you in? Now those of us who are on the narrow path, those who have been born again, those who have been made alive by the Spirit, as we walk and travel on this narrow road, there are certain realities that we face that are unique to those who are on the narrow road. And what we see here uh, in these two verses, in this introduction, and from the heart of Paul is some of these realities in his life which are found in the life of everyone who is truly a child of God. What do we see in the life and in the heart of those who travel this narrow path? And there are five things that I want to show you here. There are sacrificial intentions, providential detours, encouraging expectations, global obligations, and eager evangelism. Now, certainly there are more that are found as you travel this narrow road But I want to pull out these from the words of the Apostle Paul. So the first thing is sacrificial 
intentions. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. There is a saying, talk is cheap. What does that mean? It means that it's easy to say something, but it's a lot more difficult to do it, right? It's easy to say that you want to um, help somebody, you know, think of someone who's moving and say, I would love to help you move, but it's another thing to actually go and help them. It's easy to say that you love someone, but it takes work to actually show that love. Paul had gone on and on at this point about how much he loved these people, how much he prayed for them, how much he was looking forward to seeing them, even using the term, I long to see you. The question would undoubtedly arise, then why haven't you come to see us? I mean, if you've been praying for us, if you long to see us, if you love us, if you thank God for us every time you pray, if you're so encouraged then why don't you come see us? Was Paul's talk cheap? And you can relate to that, right? There are people in your life who who go on and on about how much they love you, how much they appreciate you, how much this and that, and yet there's not much fruit, there's not much evidence in their life to show it. And you say, hey, it's nice that you say this, but can I see some of it? Talk is cheap. Paul almost anticipates this question and tells them the truth. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be uninformed of this important fact. Paul, what is it? What is this thing that you don't want them to be unaware or ignorant of? That I have often intended to come to you. Paul lets them know that he had made many plans throughout his life as a follower of Christ, to come see them. The intention of his heart is what he wants them to know. He knows that it can be easy to say something, but he actually cares about what they think. He cares about how his words are being received. He understands that misunderstandings happen. And he cares that he is not misunderstood. Do you care about being misunderstood? Do you say, hey, I said it clearly. If they don't get it, that's on them. Or is there something in you that says, you know what? It's important to me that they understand not just the words, but my heart. I want them to know my heart. I want them to know my intentions. I want them to know where I really am. Paul doesn't think that letting people know his motives was unimportant. His plans were unimportant. No. Why? Because he doesn't want anything to get in the way of them hearing, receiving, and believing the gospel. And he understands that this man who has not come to visit them, expressing all this love, and he's about to go through 16 chapters where he is laying out the truth of who Christ is in the gospel. He did not want his lack of coming to get in the way of them hearing and receiving. And so he made sure, here's my heart, y'all. I really intended often to come to you, but he's been prevented. Is that how you are? Do you think it's important to let people know what your intentions are? Paul didn't think it was a waste of words. And more than that, who is the ultimate author of the book of Romans? It's not Paul, but who? 
The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. This is God saying this is important information. It's not a throwaway thing. He wanted to make sure that they knew what he was planning, even though it hadn't yet happened. And I call this bullet, if you will, sacrificial intentions. It's not just an intention. Thinking about the context of Paul's life. Remember, Paul was a wanted man. How many attempts on his life had been made up to this point? Many. There were even people who took vows. We're not going to eat anything until we see that man dead. Well, they never caught him. That didn't mean that their, their hatred for him went away. For Paul to make these trips opened himself up to be captured, to be hunted down, to be killed. They were looking for him. And the journey wasn't a short trip. There were no bikes, there were no buses, there were no cars, planes, trains, automobiles, right? He had to walk everywhere. It wasn't a cheap trip. It was a costly trip. Paul knew he could be arrested. He could be robbed by brigands on the way. If you remember when Jesus was with the two men on the road to Emmaus and it was dark, they said, look, stay with us because it was dangerous to travel by night. There were people who waited for travelers to rob them. It would cost him time, energy to make this trip. You know, when you think about the plans that we make to travel places, you know, there's been all these restrictions. You can't go here. You can't go there. But when we think of, okay, if I could go anywhere, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? You'd probably pick somewhere that's beautiful, like New Zealand maybe, or a place historical. Maybe you want to go visit monuments in D.C. But who wants to go to Antarctica? I mean, who says, I want to go to the Sahara Desert? No one plans that. Why? Because those places are not mm, enjoyable places. We choose destinations for travel based upon how enjoyable, how comfortable, how much we're going to enjoy. The same was true when it comes to Paul's day. Everyone wanted to go to Rome. Rome was called the Eternal City. It was the place that everyone wanted to see, the monuments, the culture, the glory of Rome. Paul had often intended to come to Rome, but why? Not so he could see the buildings. Not not so he can be impressed by the architecture. Not because he wanted to enjoy the comforts found in Rome. It wasn't about the food or the history or the music or the plays. Paul wasn't planning a vacation in Italy. He often intended to come to Rome, even though it would cost him greatly, even though it would be a a difficult journey. Why? Because this is what Christ produces in those who are on the narrow road. An intention that will cost you for the sake of others. He wanted to come to them, to bless them, to encourage them, to motivate them. Because he was thinking about others. He didn't care what it would cost him. Because his heart and mind was for someone else. And thinking about Paul's intention here, his sacrificial intention made me start to wonder, what am I giving up? What sacrifices do you make? Even if they're in your heart, what are the intentions and plans and strategies of your own heart? Do they involve sacrifice for someone else? The narrow road brings with it the reality of sacrificial intentions 
and desires. Even though it may cost you much, is your heart full of good and godly intentions for the sake of Christ and His kingdom? There are many who will serve, but they serve out of comfort to themselves. There are many who will give up things for others, but they do it because it really doesn't cost them anything. But you read the life of Paul, and every time he went somewhere, it costed him greatly. Sometimes it meant he was spent time in prison. Sometimes he was beaten. Sometimes he was stoned. He was grabbed. He was harassed. He didn't go anywhere, and there was a parade for him. Everywhere he went, everywhere he traveled to, it cost him greatly. And he had this great intention after years of traveling places and it being really difficult for him to say, I want to go to the heart of the beast, Rome itself to encourage these saints. So what about you? You think about the intentions of your heart. What do you want to do for others? How many of the things that you plan and intend to do focus on you? At the end of the day, When everything is added up, how much of it is for your sake rather than the sake of others? Is there anything in you like what we see here in Paul's heart? A deep desire to sacrifice. Are you making any plans to get with different brothers and sisters? And you may say, but people live far. Paul was willing to travel days to see these brothers and sisters. Oh, you may say, but I'm so busy. And you see, Paul had the constant pressure upon him for all the care and concern for all the churches. And none of us would say that we're busier than Paul, right? You may say, but it will cost me. I will have to give up something to see the brethren. But again, how do we define love? Love, the greatest act of love is doing the most good for someone at the most cost to ourselves, which is why John 3.16 is written the way that it is, right? God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave, and he gave his only son. He loved us in such a way that it cost him greatly for our greatest benefit that all who believe will not perish but have eternal life. This is the model and example for ultimate love, God's love. And when we look at his model of love, we see it in the life of Christ. When we look at Paul, we can see it in the life of Paul. And the question is, do you see it in your own life, even if it just rests in the intention of the heart? This is the reality for those who are on the narrow road. We will see a heart full of sacrificial intentions. But what else do we see? Uh, As you continue to follow Christ on this narrow road that is hard and there are few that find it, but it leads to life, you will also see what I've called providential detours. Uh, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, Sisters, that I've often intended to come to you, but what? Thus far I have been prevented. He tells them the reason why I haven't come is not because I didn't make the plans, or not because I didn't have the desire, or not because I didn't have the ability, I was prevented. There was a a a, a, a detour in my in my route. Paul was prevented. And this is a very important thing to remember. 
Was Paul's intentions good? Yes, <laughs> open book test. They were good. This was a good intention. It was a good desire. And he was prevented, which means your good and godly plans may be prevented. The things that you desire to do, even though they may be for the good of others, they may benefit others, they may help others, it's for the cause of Christ, it's for the good of the church, it's sacrificial to you, you're willing to pay the cost, you still may be prevented. And Paul gives us uh, insight into what prevented him from doing good things. Sometimes... It's the devil. In 1 Thessalonians 2.17, we get very similar language to what we see here in Romans 1. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul tells the saints in Thessalonica that often, and he says, I, Paul, again and again, this was the plan, this was the intention, this was the goal, but who stood in the way? Satan. The devil and his demons stood in the way of Paul coming to this church. Matthew Poole said, Satan hindered him either by raising up disputes against the gospel at Athens by the philosophers there, which he was concerned to stay in answer, or else by stirring up wicked men to lie in wait for him in the way, or by raising tumults as the Jews did at Berea, whereby he was constrained to go, as it were, by the sea, or by sowing dissension in other churches, which detained him to end them, or by what way it was is somewhat uncertain. Brothers and sisters, are you facing some of the same things? You would be traveling to see your family members, but the fear of death is being spread by the devil through this virus and you're unable to go to them. That's one way of being hindered by Satan. Maybe you've been trying to have family devotions, but uh, the, the, the foolishness that is bound in the heart of the children keeps coming out. And so you have to continue to stop opening up the Word to deal with the discipline. Have you been hindered from evangelism because of certain laws? I know there's been times when we wanted to go to uh, the abortion mill here or there, and there's been, no, you can't step on this property. Laws have been enacted. There was a time years ago, maybe you all don't know this, when my family and I were seriously being considered to uh, move to India and help with the work there. But the radical Hindu prime minister uh, changed the laws in such a way that my visa was denied and pretty much most of the missionaries in India began to be told to leave. Maybe you've intended to show love to someone in the church, but gossip and slander and uh, dissension has caused them to not have a heart open to even receive your help. You see what I'm saying? There's a reality that the enemy can come in and bring hindrance to good things through his means. 
I remember Pastor Tim telling the story of his great uncle who was 90 years old. He was a Catholic all his life. And uh, Tim was on his way and he wanted to preach the gospel to this great uncle. And the night before Tim met with him, this man was visited by a being that he described as the most glorious and beautiful being he had ever seen. So when Tim gets to his house to sit down with him and talk about the gospel, guess what? He says, I have no fear of death. Look at what I just saw. What is that? Demonic detour to hinder the truth. Satan hinders things from happening. It happened in the life of Paul, and it happens in the life of all the saints who are on this narrow road. The point being that the dark one has many ways to hinder you, and you are not promised. You are not promised that you will never be prevented or hindered or kept from doing that which is good because God is your Father. There is no guarantee that you will not be hindered. There is no guarantee that you will not be prevented. And it's important that we keep this in mind. But what do you see from the life of Paul? Even though the enemy would seek to prevent him from doing good work in one place, he doesn't quit. It's not as though he says, well, I'm not able to do anything there, so I do nothing. If he couldn't go there, he would find another place. If he couldn't help them, he would find someone else. Do you give up when you're hindered by the devil? You say, well, I'm unable to preach to those people, so I won't preach to anyone. I'm able to go to those saints, so I won't go to any saints. I've been prevented from doing what I intended to do, therefore I'm unable to do anything. But if the enemy stops you from visiting someone, that means that you're just given an opportunity to visit someone else, right? I mean, if you can't see somebody, you can call them. If you can't visit them, you can text them. You can write a letter. Uh, he hasn't prevented you from visiting everyone. I just want to encourage you to not simply give up because you have been providentially detoured, even if it is by the hand of the devil himself. If you're unable to preach the gospel because they lock you up in prison, what can you do? You can preach to those in prison. If you're unable to... to uh, be an encouragement to the church because you get sick and now you're in the hospital. What are you able to do? You're able to be a light to those in the hospital. If you can't go across the country, maybe you can go across town. If you can't go across town, can you go across the street? And if they put another lockdown and you can't even go across the street, well, you can minister to those who are across the room in your home. The point is, do not quit because you're given a detour, even if those detours come from the devil. Sometimes it was the devil who prevented Paul, and sometimes it was the Holy Spirit. Acts 16.6 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, and notice this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Sometimes Paul said, Satan hindered us. 
Sometimes it was the Spirit of Christ who did not allow them to do what? To preach the Gospel. Was it because these people didn't need the Gospel? Certainly they did. Do you have a category for this in your theology? Where the triune God, the same one who commands you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, might actually stop you from preaching to certain groups, certain people at certain times. Do you have that category in your theology? And notice, he doesn't just say it once. Like, they tried to go one place and they were forbidden, and then they tried to go somewhere else and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And maybe you've seen this as well. Here you are again. You're trying to do something good. You're trying to open up the Word to someone. You're trying to plant a church. You're trying to be a missionary. You're trying to do devotion. You're trying to do something that will point people to the living God. You're eager to do it. You're desiring to do it. You plan to do it. Everything is set up, but you are hindered. You're prevented. How do you respond? And this happens just in regular stuff, right? Sisters, how many of you have set up, okay, children, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to do homeschooling. We're going to get this done and this errand and all these good things. And then a child gets sick. The stove stops working, right? The cat dies. I mean, all this strange stuff happens that are completely out of your control. This isn't a lack of planning on your part. This isn't a lack of desire on your part. This is something that is outside of what you are able to do. What do you do? Proverbs 19, 21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And when you look at these circumstances, these disappointments to doing, again, not sinful things, good things, Godly things, gospel things, kingdom things. When you are given a detour, how do you respond? Beware of being angry with God because He disrupts your good plans. Beware of finding fault with the Lord. I would do it if you didn't stop me, but you stopped me, so beware. Because those are thoughts that can easily slip in to the mind. You must trust Him. You must remember that He is wise and that you are not and that His plans are perfect and yours are not. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You must remember that if you are a child of God, He loves you. These interruptions are not for your wrong or your bad or your harm, but they are for His glory and your good. So sometimes it's the devil and sometimes it's the Spirit who prevents you from doing good and godly things. How did Paul know that it was the devil in Thessalonica and that it was the Spirit in Acts? Inspiration. Revelation. Which means you and I don't have that information. We don't know. Is this like Job? Where the devil came to the Lord and he asked for permission and God said you can go this far and no farther? Maybe. 
Is this like the man who had the the demons cast out of him and he asked the Lord Jesus, can I go with you? Can you think of a better request? I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, stay here. Go be a missionary to the ten cities, Decapolis. Is it the devil? Is it the spirit? Ultimately, the Lord is the one who is sovereign over all, including the devil, which is what we see in Job. How do you respond to these providential detours? How do you respond to these disrupted plans, even when they're good plans? To remember that your heavenly Father is at work. Have y'all ever listened to an album that flowed? One song led to another. Uh, one of my favorites is Handel's Messiah. Have y'all ever heard that? Beautiful. But each song leads into the next. It's telling the story of the coming of Christ. It's beautiful. But imagine listening to it on shuffle, right? It kind of disrupts the flow. That's why they don't have that option when you watch a film. You can go to the chapters, but you can't put the film on random scene. And sometimes we can look at the providential disruptions and detours of the Lord like an album or a film on shuffle. That's not what it is. There is design, there is plan, there is strategy, there is the perfect will of God even in the interruptions of your plans and your will. Why do we have the book of Romans? Paul intended to come to these people. He was prevented. So what does he do? He writes a letter. And this letter is what we are studying right now, which means if there was no providential detour, would we have the book of Romans? God often, and you can think of your own life, of what you wanted to do this, but God said no. And he went this way and going that way, maybe it meant that it led you to knowing him. Maybe it meant that you bumped into your wife or your husband. Maybe it meant that it led to more fruit bearing or more encouragement. God is always working, even through the providential detours. So we can see sacrificial intention toward others. I have often intended to come to you, but we can also see that as you walk this narrow road following Christ, Everything that you intend to do, even good things, you may find disrupted. What else do we see in the heart of Paul? Encouraging expectations. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far... I have been prevented, and here's the reason that he wanted to come to them, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What did he expect to take place by his coming? What did he expect to see as a result of his visit? He wanted to see fruit. He wanted to see a harvest. He expected to see growth. He expected to see change. He expected to see conversions. He expected for God to work. Children, any of you ever plant something 
You ever put something in the soil, water it, watch it grow? Well, imagine, imagine if I told you, okay, I, I have all these seeds and I put them on the ground, I water them, I take out the weeds and I, I make sure that the soil is good, maybe I put some coffee grounds in it and I get rid of all the dangerous bugs, make sure it has good sunlight, water it regularly, and I told you I'm doing all of this but I'm not expecting anything to grow. Would that be strange? Would y'all like then why are you doing that? But that's a really good question, right? Paul did not expect for him to come and pour out and teach and preach and counsel and there would be no result. He had an eager expectation that there would be a harvest of fruit. But what about you? Do you have an expectation because of the promises of God that something is going to happen by the work and the service and the ministry that you pour out on behalf of others? Isaiah 55.10 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He had an expectation that as the gospel went forward, there would be growth and fruit and abundance like he saw in other places. You remember going through Colossians in Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in in truth. Paul believed the promises of God that the word is not going to return void. He saw it happening in other churches and he expected it when he went to Rome. Have you become too skeptical? Do you expect people to be saved when you preach? the gospel to them. We have prayer meetings every Wednesday in two parts of the city. Do you expect people to be changed when you pray for them? Do you look for it? Do you contact them and expect to see God moving? Are you expecting fruit and miracles? Has discernment become an excuse for unbelief? Have you seen so much false fruit that you don't expect anything real anymore. Because really this has nothing to do with hypocrites or liars or false brethren. This has everything to do with God and His power and His promises, right? Spurgeon, he, he, he confronts us about this hypocrisy and unbelief when he wrote these words. Another result is that the conversion of children is not expected in many of our churches and congregations. Is that true? When Jason finishes, and he walks away from the children and they go back to their seats, are we expecting for them from the time they heard to the time they get back to their chair to be converted? Do we have an expectation that God has actually awakened any of them? 
He says, another ill result is that the conversion of children is not believed in. Certain suspicious people always file their teeth a bit when they hear of a newly converted child. They will have a bite at him if they can. They very rightly insist upon it that these children should be carefully examined before they are baptized and admitted into the church. But they are wrong in insisting that only in exceptional instances are they to be received. We quite quite agree with them as to the care to be exercised, but it should be the same in all cases and neither more nor less in the cases of children. Isn't it true that when a child comes up and says, I believed on the Lord, we can quickly side in skepticism rather than faith. When someone comes in and says they are a Christian, do we have the expectation that this is probably not real? Or do you have the expectation that this is a genuine believer? We need to have discernment. But if we become skeptical... Paul didn't expect to see no fruit. He said, I can't wait to come. I've often intended. I don't want you to be unaware because I'm expecting a harvest to be reaped among you as as, as among the rest of the Gentiles. What do you expect to see? Is the Lord's arm short that he cannot save anymore? Is his ear dull that he's unable to hear? Has he lost power? Has he lost love? Has the gospel changed? Isn't he still saving sinners among whom we were the chief? So do you have this expectation? What about those who have lost their minds? They're insane. Do we not read about a man who is filled with thousands of demons sitting clothed in his right mind being used by the Lord? Is that impossible for the Lord to do now? What about sinful women who are known by their reputation? And do we not remember a certain woman who was so sinful in her lifestyle that it was It was a shame for her to even touch the Lord Jesus. And what do we see her doing? Bowed before His very feet, pouring her treasures upon Him, washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. The point is, is that God is still working. He's still able. He's still powerful. He works through the opening of His Word, the preaching of the Gospel through His people. And do you and I have an expectation that He's actually going to do miracles, or do we just assign that to the book of Acts and history and those people over there, but we have become too refined, we've become too skeptical, we've become too discerning to actually think that when someone hears the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that they will believe that when children hear about the beauty of God and who He is, that they will believe and that it is real and genuine and they will remain to the end because it's real. Do you have expectations of God's mighty work? Or have you become too mature? The children of God always have an expectation that the Lord will work and save. And that's why we do what we do. 
Well, Paul shows us sacrificial intentions. He shows us providential detours are common in the life of the believer. He shows us that he has a heart of eager expectation. And he also tells us that he has global obligations. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Obligation. This means debt. Uh, This is mandatory. This is not something that's optional for him. And you think about this. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. What is the message that we're being told today? If you are from a certain ethnicity, who should you minister to? People of the same ethnicity. If you have a certain background, who should you minister to? People of the same background. Somebody comes out of a gang, hey, we should take you to the gangs. Someone comes out of a certain lifestyle, we should take you to people of that lifestyle. As an ex-Muslim, I can't tell you how many people say, you know who you be perfect to meet? I got this Muslim friend. Because that's how we think. But if that was the case of how God worked, who would Paul be going to? To the Jews, to the Hebrews. And he did. But that door was shut. And the Lord made him the apostle of who? The Gentiles. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't line up. That's like taking somebody from the country club and taking them to the slums and saying, you're perfectly designed for this. Do y'all think that way? Because it's not the person, is it? It is the message that they carry, the spirit that is with them, and the power of God behind them. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Paul didn't say to Hebrews and Samaritans, I am under obligation to. And he didn't think that because he was a Jewish man that he was supposed to preach to Jewish sinners. Ethnicity is meaningless when it comes to the soul. Culture is useless when it comes to salvation. Skin color is irrelevant when we're talking about the wrath of God. It's not whether or not you fit in this group or that group unless we're talking about in Christ or outside of Christ, born again or in your sin. This is what matters. This is what separates. This is the question. The question is, do you know the Lord? And have you been born again? Paul had global obligations. He felt the debt to all men, regardless of where they came from, what they looked like, what culture they came out of, or what skin color they possessed. Because he knew that without Christ, all men and women and children will perish. And he was deeply concerned about that. So he says, Greeks. Greeks were seen as the the highest culture. If you know anything about Rome, they basically just said, we really like The way Greeks do it, we're just going to rename everything. So they took their gods, they took their culture, Hellenism, Alexander the Great spread Hellenism all throughout the the known world at that time, and it spread. So if you were cultured, if you were someone who was someone, you spoke Greek. You had the culture of the Greeks. You were admired if you fit into this circle. Uh, One commentator said it this way, Greeks were the civilized, cultured people around the Mediterranean Sea. 
Alexander the Great had Hellenized the known world, and when the Romans conquered these lands, they assimilated the Greek culture. Greeks were highly sophisticated and were often looked upon as being on a higher level than others as they certainly looked upon themselves in that way. Paul says, I am under obligation to the creme de la creme of society. Those who everyone else looks up to, those who people admire, those who people want to be like and be in their company, those who can actually maybe even uh, benefit you by being associated with them. But he also said to barbarians. Now, geography majors, how many of you have ever seen the land Barbaria? Good. There is no Barbaria. Uh, there is no Barland or Bargoslovia. There's nothing like that because barbarian is not a term that's based on a place. It's based on a perception. If you don't speak the language in this day, everything sounded like bar, bar, bar. We might say blah, blah, blah. So they just called them barbarians. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> Basically, if you don't speak Greek, everything else just sounds like noise. If you're not part of this culture, if you're not part of this world, if you don't do things this way, then you were looked down in that society. And those people who came from different parts of the world where they looked different, spoke different, uh, celebrated things different, raised their children different, ate different things, had different songs, they were looked at as the lowest in society. They were barbarians. And Paul says, I have an obligation both to the highest and admired in the society and the lowest viewed in the society. Who are the Greeks and barbarians in our context? Well, the Greeks might be those who are wealthy, those who have a status quo, those who are connected, those who... Uh, successful and educated and college this and degree that and they have something to maybe bring to the table uh, monetarily or physically or some skill. But who would be the barbarians? Or who does our society look down on? Well, those would probably be the homeless and the drug addicts, the prostitutes, gang members, people who practice deviant sexual sin, those who just get out of prison, Anyone who would have a hard time fitting into maybe your group of friends. Those people that you would have to sit out and talk with your children about before they came over because they might say or do something that's strange or inappropriate. That's who Paul is talking about here. He makes no difference. He makes no difference based upon culture, based upon ethnicity, based upon education, both to the wise and to the foolish, those who know how to read and those who cannot, those who are at the top of society and those who are at the bottom, from the palace to the projects, from the White House to the crack house. Everyone needs Christ is the point, and Paul felt this obligation. Nothing in this world prepares you for eternity except knowing Christ. And on the day of judgment, it won't matter what group you fit into, what clique you were a part of, what degrees you had on your wall, whether society looked down on you or looked up at you. None of that matters when you stand before the Lamb. On that day, it says both the great and the small. On that day, it talks about the kings of the world, 
begging and pleading for the mountains and rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of the lamb who sits upon the throne on that day when the screams and the cries are being wrung out. The only thing that matters is, is your name written in the book of life? And that was in Paul's heart. He felt an obligation, regardless of what society says about you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I'm indebted to you. I'm indebted to bring you the truth. I'm indebted to show you the light. I'm indebted to open up the gospel to you. And my question is, is that where your heart is? Do you have this obligation no matter who that person is? And Paul, remember, we're talking about the apostle. He's not just talking about giving somebody a track. Nothing wrong with giving tracks. We love tracks. Cast them out. But he's not talking about a one-time encounter. Because the hope is that this person will believe, join the local church, and now they are rubbing elbows together. Both the slave and the master sitting at the same table taking the Lord's Supper. Both the rich and the poor, both the Jew and the Gentile together, sitting at the same table, singing the same songs. Because when we look in Revelation 7, 9, don't we see that? Remember the warning that Chris gave us last week as we pray and preach and tell people to come in and we will see people come in, Lord willing, who are new converts and people who are not raised in the church, who didn't grow up in a nice home, two parent, you know, two car garage. They don't have all that. They come from the other side of the tracks. They may come in with some strange thoughts and some strange behaviors. And are we as the church willing, do we feel the obligation to work with these people as they are coming out of the way of the world and being conformed to the image of Christ? Because that's difficult. That takes work. It takes sacrifice. It takes patience. And Paul felt the obligation, whether you were a Greek and applauded or a barbarian and mocked and people were disgusted by you. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the bride of Christ. And if this is what we're going to see on that day, then shouldn't we begin to practice such things here? As you're on the narrow road, the Lord will give you this global obligation to all people. And then we see an eager evangelist. And this is my final point. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The final reality that we see in the hearts and lives of those who are on the narrow road is an eagerness to evangelize, an eagerness to preach the gospel. Eager. This is only used three times in our New Testament, this word. It's used twice in the Gospels. Jesus told the disciples, the spirit is willing, that's our word, but the flesh is weak. He was willing, he was eager, he was excited to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He couldn't wait. How do you handle 
evangelism? Is there an eagerness or are you nervous? Does it make you uncomfortable? Do you, does your tongue get tied? Do you feel like, I don't think I can do this. It's overwhelming, not knowing what to say or when to say. Do you stumble and struggle to, to get things out? How can you become more like Paul? How can you go from being nervous and anxious and worried and concerned, the fear of man overwhelming you and maybe even keeping your mouth closed to being eager and excited and willing and planning, and strategizing, even at great cost to yourself, no matter who it is. I'll tell you this. If you look to people for motivation, you will not be motivated very long. Paris Reedhead, in his famous sermon, Ten Shekels in a Shirt, he talks about how he went to Africa as a missionary because he didn't want his fellow human beings to suffer eternally after they had suffered so much on earth. He said he, had saw, he saw pictures of lepers and pictures of hungry children and pictures of all this uh, idolatry, and his heart was moved to go to help the people. And he said when he got there, he was so disappointed to the point of anger with God because what he found is these people knew about God and didn't care. They knew about heaven and didn't want to go there. They loved their sin. They were monsters of iniquity, just like everybody else. They had no interest in Christ. He tried to sit with them. He tried to tell them about eternal life, and they cared nothing. And he was so shocked and so upset that he went all the way there because of his love for people, and those people had no interest at all in the living God. And he was ready to pack it up and leave. And he said as he was praying to the Lord, the Lord opened his heart and his mind to hear the whole point of it all. And this is how you go from being terrified and anxious and nervous to being eager and excited. He says this. It says, though the Lord said to my heart, I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserved hell, but I loved them, and I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward for my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? He said it reversed it all. It changed it all. It righted it all. Christ suffered the wrath of his father to purchase a people. And doesn't he deserve to have those people come in? And the way he set it up is that he uses us in the preaching of the gospel for them to come in. This is about being motivated by God and his glory. This is by being motivated by the worthiness of the Lord. All these people on the planet, they don't care about God. You have people in your own life who don't care about God. They don't think about God. God is just something out there or someone that they just call on when they need help and then they don't bother them again like a winter coat you take out in the winter and you put it away in the summer. That's how people treat God and he is worthy of all. He's worthy of everything. And we are so moved by the fact that our God who's worthy of all is not treasured in honor as he deserves. So we go out for him. We go out for his name's sake. Christ bled to purchase a people and all those people he bled for have not come in. So we go out for his name's sake. 
This is how you can be eager and excited and motivated in spite of what people do. People will disappoint you. People who persecute the church, mock the Bible, hate God. It's hard to be motivated by love of man. But God, who is perfect and worthy of all, can't you find motivation in him? Isn't he worthy of the cost of people spitting in your face, laughing at you, thinking differently about you? Isn't he worth going to a prison cell? Isn't he worth being tortured? Isn't he worth dying to, if it brings him glory? Everyone on the narrow road believes that. But even after you hear Paris Reedhead or somebody else tell you these things, you're still weak. I mean, has your fear suddenly dissolved? How did Paul have such confidence and boldness? He tells us in Ephesians 6.18, after he lays out the armor of God, he requests something for himself. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And what does he want? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Point is this. Paul relied on on the Spirit of God to give him the grace to preach the gospel with boldness. And the way he saw that happening is by asking the saints to pray for him. Paul was not just bold. He had a bold personality and you don't, and therefore he had success and you don't. No. Paul knew the only way he's going to open his mouth with boldness or eagerness or excitement, The only way he's going to risk it all for the sake of Christ is if others pray for him. He knew the power was not in himself. It's in the Lord, and the Lord will give you that grace. He asked for prayer. So, brothers and sisters, you don't have the strength. You don't have the ability to muster it up yourself. But the Lord does, and he's able to give you that strength and to give you that grace so that you can think about him, set your mind on things above, remember Christ's agony on the cross, remember the great sacrifice that the Father has given, remember the power of the Holy Spirit, and be motivated by him, by the prayers of others, that you go forward with an eagerness and an excitement to bring God glory, and as a byproduct, bring joy to men. Take instruction from Paul. And finally, brothers and sisters, truly final thing here. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, right? Who were those in Rome? They were the church in Rome. So Paul was not just excited and eager to preach the gospel to unbelievers, He was also eager and excited to preach the gospel to who? To the church. Which means the the gospel is not just for the lost. You need to hear the gospel every single day. 
somebody wrongs you, how are you going to forgive them? Only if you think of what you have been forgiven by God through Christ will you be able to forgive. How are you going to love those who are so unlovable because when you were still a sinner, God shows His love for you in that Christ died at the right time even while you were sinning? Where is the motivation to keep going? Is it not this? Do not grow weary in well-doing for if you don't fate, you will reap a harvest in due time. God will reward you openly for what you do for him secretly. There is a day that's coming when he will give crowns and treasures, rewards for all the labor. How do you keep going? How did the saints in the first century, when they were going to lions, where did they find the, 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 the help to press on when they're looking at death toward is death. They looked forward to the resurrection. They looked forward to the promises of Christ. They looked forward to the joy of their Lord as they're ushered into his presence. What I'm saying is this, you need to be preaching the gospel to one another and you need to be preaching the gospel to yourself. You have an enemy who comes and accuses of things that you may have actually done. You have an enemy that comes and he slanders and he, uh, he deceives and he lies and you need to stand on the solid rock of the truth that God love me while I was a sinner and if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also graciously with him give us all things if he loved me when I was a sinner does he love me less now that I'm his child you need the gospel gospel truth gospel facts gospel promises to bring you in to keep you going to keep the encouragement that is needed in the church Paul was excited to preach the gospel both to the lost and to the church. He had an obligation to everyone, regardless of what they looked like or where they came from. Paul had an eager expectation that he was looking forward and encouraging the expectation at that, that there would be growth and that there would be fruit, even though it meant that sometimes his plans were providentially detoured and his heart was full of sacrificial intentions for the church. Lord willing, as we walk this narrow road, you will see the same things in your own life. Let's pray. Father, we can look at the example of Paul and be encouraged, but we know, Lord, that Paul was only worth being encouraged by as he followed the example of your Son. Christ is the ultimate missionary. He risked it all. He really did give. He didn't just have intention and He wasn't prevented. He came and He suffered. He bled. He suffered the agony of Your own wrath to bring us in. Not making any distinction regardless of where we came from or what we were. Such love. Help us, Father, to be motivated and moved by that. In Jesus' name, Amen.